All right, everybody, it's Crosstown Conversations. It is Tuesday, and we are days away from the Jazz Fest and one of my favorite events of the year, the Sync Up Conference that the Jazz Fest puts on. This year they're putting it on not in the in the park at the museum as usual, but at the uh, George and Joyce Ween Jazz and Heritage Center on North Rampart Street, 1225 North Rampart just two blocks down the river from Esplanade and where the uh, Jazz Fest offices are. We have some very heavyweight folks for you on the show today coming from that Sync Up conference. And the first one is Brian Camelio. Brian, is that you? Yes. Hi. Is that the right pronunciation of your name, Camelio? Camelio is correct. That's right. There we go. Uh, folks, Brian is the founder and CEO of Artist Share. And Artist Share is a platform that connects creative artists with fans in order to share the creative process with them and fund the creation of art. It was the first website of its kind. It predated Kickstarter, Indiegogo, GoFundMe, all those other guys. So, Brian, you are an inventor. Uh, well, yeah. I've been called worse things. Yeah, that's, that's, I've been a inventor for sure. <laughs> well, you know, I'm always fascinated uh, by uh, folks who are innovators, inventors, creators, because uh, it takes, first of all, of course, imagination, inspiration, all those good things to have the idea, but more importantly, to have the faith to take it forward, um, the confidence in yourself and the and the smarts to figure out literally how to launch something. And I think a lot of people in our audience and and everywhere, um, you know, have ideas all day long. Wow, we should do this. We should do that. Here's the solution for this. And then nothing happens because they either just don't have the confidence or they don't know how to do it. So I, I, I can't help but start at the beginning. I want to know how, well, first of all, of course, you have to tell me just a little bit more about Artist Share itself, and sure. then I want to understand how you took the leap. Okay, sure. Well, Artist Share, I started Artist Share in around 2000, 2001. Um, I'm, I'm a, an ex-jazz musician myself. I played professionally for about 15 years. And there was a time you know, in the late 90s where the music industry looked like it was going in a direction that wasn't that favorable for the artists. And I got concerned about about how great music and great art would continue to be created. And that's when I started to come up with some ideas. And, and one thing, the first thing that I realized was that uh, the most important thing is is the artists themselves. I mean, the most interesting, the, all the people that I knew, all my, all my friends were jazz musicians. And I thought, I thought, and I still think to this day that they're the most interesting and wonderful and creative people in the world. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that this was, you know, this would continue. So I uh, saw the problem, and I, I realized that people, you know, were getting bad label deals, and you know, weren't able to uh, to, to uh, getting dropped from their labels, and then not owning their masters. And I was kind of seeing things fall apart. So I decided that I would come up with uh, something that would put the power back into the hands of the of the creative artists and allow them to continue. Doing this, and that's kind of what I did with Artist Share. I, I realized that the most important uh, part of the 
uh, of the process was the connection with the fan. And some of the most interesting, you know, moments in the, uh, that happen are during the process of creation. So very simply, I just decided to create a website that would share the creative process and allow people to fund projects that they liked. And that was how Artist Share was, was born. Okay, so uh, again, there's the idea, there's the need, and mm-hmm. um, and, and then you, you you come up with the answer. So how does the answer work? Uh, <laughs> the answer meaning the of uh, of of what it what it what the problem that it solved and how it solved it. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, basically, um, when I put up this website, I started with my good friend Maria Schneider and my other good friend, the late Jim Hall, and. We put up some projects, and we and we asked the fans. We said, "Hey, how would you like to be a part of the making of this these great recordings, and maybe get your name on it, or come to the recording session, or do something like that?" And in exchange, you give us some money up front, and we'll give you the CD when it's done. And so we put that up, and we launched our first project in October of 2003, and it was Maria Schneider's uh, latest recording, at, at, which ended up being called "Concert in the Garden." And wouldn't you know, after a couple of weeks, people started, you know, throwing in money, and it was it was amazing, you know, to, and so it was a real charge for the artist. Uh, Maria got very excited because these people were were directly contacting her, and we were communicating with these people directly, and sharing with them the ins and outs and the ups and downs of of how a record is made, and she funded the record, and you know, lo and behold, it was it won a Grammy. Uh, and so everybody involved was just over the moon, you know, excited because we did this without any record label. We did it without it being in retail stores. It was, it was actually the first record to ever win a Grammy that wasn't available in retail stores. And so we kind of proved that the, the power of the music industry is the connection between the artist and the fan, and that we could do it without any, without having to, Maria having to give away her masters without having to lose a ton of money on something so we tapped into something that um that we that i i knew it was going to be a sustainable model but it was everybody else was kind of hoping (laughs) that it would be and so far it has been we've uh we've been very very successful over the past 13 years Uh, won lots of grammy awards and gotten lots of nominations and put out more importantly put out a ton of great music and uh and had a lot of fun doing it with the fans. So uh, you said that you knew it was a sustainable idea. How did yeah. you know? I knew because I am a not only a musician, but I'm a, a huge music fan. And I just I know that music is is a need. Music isn't like uh, you know something that's, that's optional. Music is something that people need in their lives. And it's also something that uh, the, the connection between the fan and the artist is extremely strong. And there were clues all along, along the way. Like, for example, uh, one of the key moments uh, in putting this idea together was I went to a West African dance show. And the dancers were on stage dancing, and, and these people would stand up and they'd go up to the stage and they'd start throwing dollar bills at the, at the dancer. <laughs> that was with my friend. I said, what is happening? She said, oh, that's a, that's a tradition uh, in West Africa. If you like the dancer, you go up and you throw the women, take off the jewelry and throw the jewelry at the dancer, and they throw the money. And, it, and that's when the connection came. I was like, oh, yeah. So people 
show appreciation for things that move them emotionally or things that they, they feel connected with. Uh, that's the greatest motivator is, you know, is to move somebody through, through art. Um, and that's why I knew if, if, we had the, if we got the right formula and we got the right you know, uh, tools to do this, that, that the rest would kind of happen on its own because, you know, to me, there's an there's a, there's a inherent need, an inherent beauty to the creative process that, that's undeniable. As you know, Stevie Wonder put it wonderfully, you can feel it all over. When it's happening, you can, you can really feel it, you know? You can feel it all over. We were just, yeah. I was just hearing that um, a minute ago. Um, okay, so uh, very interesting. And um, so the last year, my organization, I've run an organization called the Creative Alliance of New Orleans, and, and um, I had had this idea for some time to do um, – a kind of mixed media opera about how the people in the neighborhoods of New Orleans brought their neighborhood back, even when the bureaucracy was throwing every obstacle imaginable in their path. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I brought together um, some jazz musicians because, uh, like you, I'm a jazz um, addict. I would have to call it. I in <laughs> high school, um, this will reveal how old I am. But in high school in New York, I used to listen in the Bronx. I used mm-hmm. to listen to Symphony Sid. Right. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> oh, does that take you back? And um, until dawn, I mean, I just couldn't fall asleep. Yeah. I was just listening to this music uh, so much, and and so I um, I wanted to do this thing, and, and I called the Ninth Ward Improv Opera, and I didn't have any money for it. So I said, "How the hell am I going to get money for this?" And I had a very short time frame to work with, so we did one just. Um, I don't remember where I got the money for. I got a little bit of money. I did one version of it and did a video on it and then put it out on Kickstarter. And um, it was a lot of work, but we doubled the money we expected. We got twice as much money as um, we asked for. And I was actually shocked because I was always so scared of doing a Kickstarter because I just – you know, fear of failure, just I won't get the money and I'll, you know, you know, um, lose face, whatever. But um, it, 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 it worked for all the reasons you just gave, because we did this little video and it was very persuasive. My artists were fabulous. I mean, we had people like Kid Jordan and David Torkinowski and, and um, a whole a bunch of guys that were actually fairly new to me who were terrific. A spoken word artist named Chuck Perkins, who runs the... Um, uh, um, Cafe Istanbul and also has a show on the same station. Uh-huh. And um, he's fabulous and the dancers, Monique Moss put them together. It was just talent. It was just art. It was everything you just said and right. it and it really works. So I, I get it, but it still takes, it takes a lot of guts and especially to actually put a t- tremendous amount of time I'm sure you put into getting this off the ground. And the reason I, I started with that question is because I, I want people in our audience, we have so many creative people in New Orleans, and um, mm. they not enough of them are able to really pursue their dreams for lots of reasons. And I wanted yeah. them to know that you can kind of start from scratch with a dream and, a, and, an, and an instinct and some anecdotal you know, revelatory moment, the light bulb moment that you had with the African dancers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know about those light bulb moments, and and you know anybody who anybody any human being knows about them. And so, right. um, it, it's it's it works. It can work. <laughs> it's worked for you, and it's worked for your artists. How many artists have you actually been able to put out there? Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> we're we're 
you know, we, we work with a, with a handful of people right now, may, you know, maybe 100. Wow, uh, that's total, a lot. You know, but, uh, yeah, we, we kind of morphed into a uh, uh, more of a, a really music-centric, uh, Artist Share is more of a music-centric site. We have a new site called Fan Funded, which is a kind of self-service version of Artist Share, which is, follows the same principles that uh, we feel that... Um, that if you leave the the, the, the artist or the creator, uh, you know, with the fan, they'll they'll work it out. <laughs> you know, it'll get done. You know, without you want too much interference in it. You don't want people coming in and grabbing pieces of it. And you know, we have a real methodology for that. So so explain that to me. So um, uh, first of all, artist share is still going. Is that right? Oh yes, yes. And and do people have to be selected to be a part of that? Yeah, Artist Share is an invitation-only platform uh-huh. at this point because it's so hands-on. I mean, literally, uh, you'll spend a lot of time, you know, uh, if you're an Artist Share artist. We'll, we'll do a lot of planning, do a lot of, you know, uh, promotion and PR, you know, figuring out uh, how we're going to, uh, you know, get the, get the next project financed. With, with fan-funded, it's more of a turnkey self-service. Anybody can come in. And do it, and uh, and again, you use the same tools that we're using, uh, but but a less uh, less curated thing. It's it's just not possible for me to, uh, you know, to spend that amount of time with everybody. But I do want everybody to have the benefit of what we're doing. So well. uh, then the the next question is: so there you are, you're out on uh, either Artist Share or Fan Funded, and mm-hmm. how does somebody find you? Well, it depends on you know. Who somebody is? <laughs> uh, the there's a there's a it's it actually the the more things change the more they stay the same. That's all I have to say about that. Is that um, if if you as an artist uh, are excited about what you do and you you uh, convey that excitement to people they're going to convey your excitement and their excitement to other people. So if uh, there's, is there a chance that people will just randomly do an, inter- an Internet search and, and come and land on the site? Yeah, there's a chance of that. There's also a chance that you, you'll win the lottery. That's a, you've got a chance there, too. You know? yeah. But these days it's really about um, taking care of the people who are already fans of what you do and really, really showing them a great experience so they talk to other people. And then, when we have a like with artists here, we have a, a a bunch of artists all, you know, on there. We we have a community, of course. People come to artists here; they know they're going to, they're going to, they expect to get something, you know, that's that's good. Or they they might come in from from one artist and and uh, discover another artist that way. So that's the that's the benefit of having a um, a community of some sort like that. So you know, basically, to answer your question. Um, you know, so you basically you have to hit your your um, your existing list of friends and associates yeah. and friends who have friends and lists and yeah. and do the usual social media thing. Think it like think of it like a live performance. You know, when you're at a live performance, you're not worried about the people who aren't at the performance hearing you, right? You need to play to the people who are at the performance. Treat it just like that. And the people who are at the performance have a great time. They're going to go out and tell the other people about the performance and then hopefully get them to the performance next time. Again, it's the more technology advances, the more the old, you know, truths and principles of art and music hold true. You know, it's really about 
that artistic connection. It's not about marketing. It's not about how many, you know, social media contacts you have. That's all fine, and there's, that's, there's definitely a place for that, and it, and it definitely cumulatively helps. But it's, for me, it's not, the, it's not where the, the majority of the focus should be made. The majority of the focus should be made on the people who you already know, who already express interest in what you're doing, and cultivate from that point onward. Uh, that's, to me, that's always... Musicians sometimes don't realize the power that they have. You know, if you think about it, uh, the whole advertising industry is based on getting your attention. Right? That they spend billions of dollars every year trying to get people's attention. You could be walking through a completely chaotic, crowded shopping mall, and if you hear a some music or a melody that that strikes you, all of a sudden everything disappears, and that's all you can hear. Do you realize how powerful that is? Yeah, it's amazing, you know? and you're probably going to be humming that tune for the next few days too. Right. So musicians <laughs> tend to really undersell themselves on how powerful they are with marketing. Uh, all they need to do is to do what they do really well, connect with that creative force that, you know, that'll flow through them and, you know, and you'll be fine. You'll be taken care of. Brian, this has been really interesting and I wish I could uh, just do the whole show with you, but I've got some other interesting <laughs> folks coming on. I don't know if you know Great. Ghazi Shami. He's uh, next up and um, I'm really excited about being able to spend some time with you on the air. Um, uh, Y'all, Brian Camelio. And it's com, and it's um, also http colon backslash backslash artistshare.com or artistshare.com. What about FanFunded? <laughs> How do people fa- find FanFunded? FanFunded.com. FanFunded.com. Couldn't be easier. Yeah. And you're going to be at the um, George and Joyce Ween Jazz and Heritage Center at 1225 North Rampart Street, which is right there where the Jazz um, uh, Fest offices are and um, on on uh, Rampart just down from Esplanade. Um, admission is free, but you have to register in advance, everybody. So please, here's how you do it. You go to syncupconference.com, and that's S-Y-N-C. SYNCUpConference.com. Register because um, seating is always limited, and I think everybody's going to want to hear from Brian as as well as the other really interesting industry people who are coming to town. Brian, I know you're going to have a blast in New Orleans, and um, I can't wait to hear your next idea. So um, (laughs) be sure and uh, be sure and stay in touch, and uh, let me know uh, what what, what's going on. So I'll have you on again. I'd I'd love to. And and you're a homeboy for me. Are you actually from New York? I see that you've been in New York for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm, I've been here for 25 years. So. So I'm going to guess that you uh, you've lived a little longer. So you got born somewhere else, right? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, good luck to you, and uh, I hope I'll have a chance to uh, come into the session. I'm not sure about that yet, but um, I think you'll find um, everybody here hungry for the ideas that you have. Great. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thank you. You take care. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. So, folks, that's that's just one of the... um, uh, really exciting people we have lined up for you. And um, in a, just a moment, we're going to bring on Ghazi Shami, who is the founder and CEO of Empire Distribution. 
And um, this is the company and the record label founded in 2010 that distributed Section 80, hip-hop artist Kendrick Lamar's first album. And, um, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big thing. I, I only discovered Kendrick Lamar recently, I have to admit. I'm uh, not out on the, on the scene and the streets as much as I used to be. Um, but I, I happened to watch the Grammys recently for the first time in a long time. I thought the show was stupendous. I mean, just really great. And one of the things on that show that I enjoyed the most um, was um, this guy, Ghazi, I'm sorry, uh, Kendrick. Um, his uh, performance, uh, both uh, visually and, and musically, was just one of the best I'd seen in a long time. So I was really excited about it. Empire has released a large number of hip-hop and rap albums in addition to gospel, R&B, and rock and other genres. And they've supported the debut albums and early singles of a number of early artists frequently signing young talent. So um, I'm just really um, excited and uh, waiting on him. He hasn't quite gotten on the line yet, but... Um, I'm hoping to hear um, his voice in just a moment. Um, you know, I just want to talk about the Sync Up Conference for a minute, too, because um, the beauty of the Sync Up Com Conference is not just that these folks that, um, I guess Scott Iges is the one who brings uh, everybody together on this. It's not just that they're here in town, uh, and, and of course they're getting exposure to a lot of talent in the area, but when you go to these sessions with them, um, there is a lot of audience engagement. You really have a chance to talk with them and, and, and get uh, some input from them on your ideas and ask them how they're doing theirs. I mean, it's, it's a really incredible opportunity. So um, I'm, I'm very uh, I'm excited about um, Ghazi coming in also. So I just want you to know that um, this is this is an opportunity for you, and, and you really want to think about getting there. So you're going to really want to make sure that you get registered at that syncupconference.com. And we have Ghazi. Hey, Ghazi. Hello. Yeah, I'm here. Hey, how are you doing? So um, I just uh, went through a little bit of a long introduction on you, Um until I got you on the line, and I'm I'm really excited to have you um, talk about um, your uh, company and the kinds of things you do. And I was just explaining to the audience what a treat and a and a really a privilege it is to be able to talk with some folks who are doing cutting edge things in the music scene and and entertainment and the arts in general all over the country. So um, thank you for coming on with us and taking a minute. No, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to everybody. So um, I, I, I tend to ask my first question always has to do with how you got started in what you do, because we have so much talent in New Orleans and a lot of people who um, have ideas but don't necessarily know how to get them off the ground or may not have the confidence to. And so I was just talking, I don't know if you were able to hear Brian Camello with um, Artist Share, and he was talking about how he got his program going. It was very interesting because he was a jazz musician and he was worried about where the, the industry was going, and, and um, he figured out that the best way to make sure that it was going was to link up fans and musicians, and he happened to see some. Did you hear it? Um, 
he happened to hear some uh, African-American performers and uh, dancers, and um, they were from, some of the folks in the program were from West Africa, and they had been throwing money on stage to the artists, and he was curious about that, and apparently it was a tradition in West Africa right. that if you liked an artist, you threw money on the stage. Um, so right. he got the idea to do this uh, Kickstarter-type program, um, Artist Share, that was preceded Kickstarter, actually. So, you know, tell me about how you got started, the idea that was in your mind and, and, the, and the guts and confidence it took for you to get off the ground, and, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what your company does. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I was a staple in the in the artist community here in the Bay Area, which was, you know, a pretty substantial independent music scene, especially for urban music, rap music in the early 90s, mid-90s, late-90s, so on and so forth. And um, I had an engineering background and a production background, so um, I was mixing a lot of records, mastering a lot of records, producing and writing on records, and <clears throat> I was doing pretty much everything else under the sun that you could think of from, you know, being out in the streets with street teams, um, dabbling at radio stations and promotions, manufacturing. I, w I was pretty much a jack-of-all-trades and, and doing everything under the sun, but I was also um, very much a product of my environment, being that it was um, a large independent rap community, but, you know, couple that with the fact that we also have the Silicon Valley right down the street, and this is the heart of technology and, you know, kind of like the heartbeat for the nation when it comes to anything that's innovative in terms of technology. So, you know, the city I went to high school in is where the original Napster was from. You know, Apple was right down the street. Um, Google and YouTube and Twitter all originated here. So I was kind of surrounded by a lot of things that I took for granted based on um, the environment that I was subjected to. And over the course of time, um, you know, this is like the late 90s, early 2000s, you start to see the convergence of technology and entertainment. And I was kind of right in the thick of it. And um, being that I had a lot of relationships with the musicians out here from spending so much time in the studio, a lot of these guys just became my friends. And so I kind of became the go-to guy that just had a lot of answers that had anything to do with music, whether it was contract-related, um, mixing-related, marketing-related. I knew a little bit about radio. Um, and then one thing led to another. Um, I started working for a company that was very similar to what I'm doing now called Ingrooves. Um, and I developed a big, you know, I was a big part of the reason that they have an urban department. And, and we put out a lot of urban records and kind of went to all my friends and all the guys that I was working out here with. And I said, hey, look, I got this opportunity. Um, and uh, let's see if we can capitalize on it. And so one thing led to another. Um, been a couple years at Ingrooves, left Ingrooves, and then I started my own outfit, um, and I called it Empire. And really the whole concept behind the word Empire was I always believe in self-contained ecosystem. Um, and what I mean by that is having the autonomy and the freedom to roll out ideas at will, and that's kind of where how the company started. So there's a lot of technology involved in how we put the company together, as well as a lot of traditional, um, you know, marketing and you know, uh, production philosophy. You know, it, it's it's uh, it's very interesting. But that's a skinny story, not the long one. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I appreciate that. But that was a really interesting um, analysis of. Um, I hear, I hear. First of all, exposure to the tech industry. I hear getting an education 
um, in in a skill that uh, was the foundation for your career, your technical um, uh, skills. Um, I hear, um, you know, being friends with the people you're working with and, and building on those friendships. Um, and then the, this whole idea of, of, yeah, being able to, to control the process yourself and, and um, have that, as you said, self-contained ecosystem and roll things out at, at free will. I love that quote. Um, it's, 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 um, it's a challenge. It takes a lot. Of, it still takes, even with the education that you had and, the, and the, um, your environment being surrounded with all that tech stuff, somebody else could have just been intimidated by all that. Instead, you tried to look into it and figure out how to make it work for you. So I'm, I'm fascinated about that moment when you said, I, I can do this. Yeah, um, I mean, long story short, like I said, I, I was I was at Ingrooves. Um, Ingrooves was kind of the final piece to put, to, excuse me, to the puzzle for me. <clears throat> I had done pretty much everything under the sun in the music industry. The only thing that I didn't know a lot about was contracts. Um, and so going there, I had the opportunity to uh, shadow the legal department, learn a lot about um, how contracts work, you know how recoups work, how non-exclusive versus exclusive rights, um, how to structure indemnification, you know, just all the basic things in contracts that I had no idea what they meant. Um, so it was, yeah, it was really about evolving my knowledge. And then knowing that what I accomplished there, for the most part, uh, you know, a, a big part of it was just me hitting the ground and being in the trenches and fighting the battles and educating people about what it was that we were doing and it was it was a very cutting edge thought process because you're doing non-exclusive distribution deals people can walk away whenever they want right so the thought process was if i do right by my client and my client understands that and i pay my client then chances are my client won't leave and so we always viewed a lot of the things that we were doing at least i did as more as partnerships more so than a label to artist or a distributor to artist or a distributor to label. Um, so it was all about just empowering the relationship through sharing knowledge and transparency uh, of the knowledge. So, I mean, once I did it there, I knew that I was like, hey, I did this in somebody else's system. If I could do this here, then I'm pretty sure I can do this on my own, and I can probably flourish on my own because the time that I spend in the bureaucracy of – other meetings or listening to other people's ideas or rolling out other people's plans, let me go roll out my own plan um, thoroughly, you know, without any constraints or any hiccups. And um, once I started working on my own, it was just, it was an, it was an amazing feeling. Because um, I had always been very entrepreneur-like in, in nature. Um, and I always liked working on my own. I, I mean, I only spent two years at Ingrus. So, um, you know, once I went back to being independent and working on my own, I felt like it was almost like, hey, the umbilical cord is gone. I can just thrive on my own nutrition. Let me get out of here and let me go do what I do best and go talk to people. So explain to me exactly when you said uh, it's non-exclusive um, uh, distribution. So I don't know a whole lot about how your business works. So explain to me. I know you're a distribution company and a record <coughs> label, but um, uh, right. I'm going to assume that you're using some new tech 
techniques to do this. And I just want to remind everybody that this is the guy who helped Kendrick Lamar get his first album out. And I don't know if you heard me say in my very um, long introduction to you that uh, I used to be out on the streets a lot more than I am lately, but I happened to uh, decide to watch the Grammys one night, even though past productions I didn't love. This was a great show. It was just a great show. And Kendrick Lamar was one of the reasons. So I'm, I'm really impressed that you were able to um, to work with him and to bring him out. But uh, more important, uh, really, the, the, the notion of, of, of creating a distribution company at a time when distribution is extremely complicated and difficult. Tell me, what was the driving idea and, and what is the driving idea right now? So, um, I mean, the, 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 the basic idea behind the distribution company was that for me, in my mind, distribution was supposed to be an afterthought. Distribution was supposed to be like a clock. You look at the arms, and the arms move, but in the background there's a series of, you know, gears and sprockets and so on and so forth that are moving, and it's very complicated underneath the hood. But to the consumer or to the partner that you're working with, it should be very simple and fundamental. Move a product from A to B, right? So once you can move the product from A to B, then you've accomplished distribution. But what separated us from everybody else was along the course of moving that product from A to B, it's how do you move it? Do you move it just you're warehousing it, you're just trucking it, or are you moving it in style and are, are you adding value to that product? So one of the main things that we always um, explored when we were in the, in the Silicon Valley, I spent a lot of time working there too, was I worked for a computer company and one of the terms we always used was value-added reseller. So as a distributor, you're really just a reseller. So if you're going to just resell somebody and take, resell, excuse me, a product and take a cut of it, then what value are you adding to that product? Why should somebody work with you? And so what we spent a lot of time and energy on early on as a, as a distribution company was how do we mimic some of the things a label does? And so how do we do marketing? How do we do publicity? How do we um, do editorial services? How do we help people create um, uh, rollout plans for their projects and strategize how to reach the marketplace, how to acquire subscribers um, to your social media and to, you know, your YouTube channels and your SoundCloud channels, so on and so forth. So that's kind of what separated us from a lot of people early on is that our pockets weren't deep. And so because we didn't have the money to go pay for mainstream radio and television early on in the company, we learned to be very resourceful. Um, and that resourcefulness was based on building really good relationships to retail and really good relationships to the blog world and really good relationships with the labels that we were doing business with, right? And the philosophy behind the way our distribution deals functioned, why they were non-exclusive, was traditional labels, in my mind, do deals to acquire rights from artists, right? So they want to acquire album rights, they want to acquire your likeness, they want to acquire your touring rights, so on and so forth, because they have these big elaborate machines and they need to feed the machine to be able to stay alive and pay their bills, keep the lights on. My philosophy was a little different. Um, I was lean and mean, so in order to feed my machine, my approach was what's my fastest path to business with this person? And my fastest path to business often meant just do a non-exclusive deal. If you tell somebody, hey, you can use my distribution company, you can use my marketing team, and if you don't like it, you can walk away at any time, it's pretty, you know, it's, it's pretty attractive to a lot of people because they feel like they're not stuck if it doesn't work out. And, you know, more, far more often than not, most of our 
partners remained partners and most of our clients remained clients because we did right by the people we were working with. And then obviously as the company progressed, um, we evolved the business model to include more record label-like services with radio, television, um, deals that were more exclusive but still weren't like seven album deals, you know, maybe one to two album deals. Um, and then we evolved our publishing division. We evolved our merch division. Um, and now the company's, you know, is, is starting to really gel and come into its own as an entity. But really, I would say the, the, the real main heart and soul of it was what is our fastest path to business with this person so that we can see if we're right for one another. I think that's really fascinating. And um, But again, uh, it, it took a lot of guts to take that position. It took a, a sense that you knew that you were going to be able to provide the services and the and the opportunities and the income that the artist uh, needs. Um, you, you just you had to believe that you could do that. Otherwise, you would never have been able to offer that non-exclusive because you could have theoretically exposed yourself to a tremendous amount of work with no um, return. Yeah, so yeah, um, that's just uh, it's, that's that an incredible story. The almost other unconscious at some point, you know, it was almost an unconscious belief. It just we knew that the relationships were strong with the people we were working with, and we knew that the word of mouth in the streets locally here in the Bay Area where we started was really strong. That you know that the company was very ethical and had people's best interest at hand, and that went a long way for us early on, and still goes a long way for us now. So, so my question, I suppose, um, is that's irresistible. Is what's next? <laughs> that's very. Um, that's a very complicated answer. Um, I think a lot of that depends on what the market dictates. Right? Um, we're heading into a streaming world. Um, things are changing. We're heading into a global music economy. Um, so, I mean, it's really about just watching. Um, soaking in information, learning, and evolving um, with the industry. I think a lot of things. A lot of times, people think that they've gotten big enough and you know powerful enough that they don't need to conform to what's changing. And I think we're in an ever-changing industry now, more so than ever. So my philosophy on it is continue to adapt and evolve with the music industry and with the DNA of. Um, what's happening um, in the artist community. You know, artists are a lot more educated about their rights now. Um, they're a lot more educated about what they can or can't do on their own. And so um, I think really more so than ever, we just want to continue to evolve partnerships um, and create strong alliances with the labels that we really love to work with. Um, and I think everything else will kind of sort itself out. But, you know, car, you know cars are hitting the road every day with streaming applications in them. Millions of phones are hitting the streets every day here um, domestically in the United States and then abroad. You know, we're starting to see streams come from Africa, South America, so on and so forth. So it, it's, I mean, I think it's like an exciting new frontier. I'm a big Star Trek fan. This is a new frontier <laughs> in the music industry, and it's going to be pretty exciting to watch it unfold. That's uh, it. Just has been fascinating to listen to you. And um, uh, what I sense also is just an incredibly deliberate spirit. Um, intentional is a word that's common these days. Um, there's there's no um, uh, maybe if kinda sorta it'll happen fate. 
it's it's um, choosing a path and really uh, going after it. And um, I'm in uh, admiration of, of what you're doing, Ghazi. So I'm wishing you Thank lots you. and lots of luck. Now, I want to tell people um, how to find you. First of all, reminding everybody the Sync Up Conference um, is coming up. And uh, let me get my information in front of me again so I can make sure, sure. that um, – they come to see you. It is this Friday. Um, starts at eleven o'clock. You're. Um, are you on the first panel? Wait, is it this Friday or next Friday? Um, I'm sorry. It is next Friday, Friday the 29th, okay. and it's uh, at the George. Thank you I for saying that. Hey, everybody! Panel, it's next mistaken. Friday. Um, so it is yeah. uh, at the George and Joyce Ween Jazz and Heritage Center at 1225 North Rampart Street. Yeah, I'm excited. I haven't been to New Orleans in about 12 years. Oh uh, well, it's interesting. The city, you know, the city has a way of of having the, the stay the way it was thread woven right in with the what's new thread. So um, we we never lose our connection to our cultural legacy. Um, it's very powerful here. Um, SyncUpConference.com. Sign up to go because if you don't, you won't be able to get in. If they have have everybody up registered with all the seats, so. SYNCUpConference.com. And um, if you don't mind, um, Ghazi, you are um, EMPI.RE. Correct. That is a very unusual. That's, Tell me about that. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's a custom URL. So basically the word empire with a dot in it is our URL. I got so it. EMPI.RE. Um, uh, look forward to uh, seeing you in person. I know you're going to be really valuable for people to listen to. You were terrific today, and thank you so thank much you for giving much. us some time. Appreciate it. Have a blast yeah, have in a New day. Orleans. Thank Enjoy you. it. Sign up some All right. acts. <laughs> All right. Take care. Um, guys, I mean, really, uh, it's just a privilege to have folks like that um, involved, and uh, I hope that you all will get out there. And um, – I'm also excited about uh, something that's happening in the visual world. So I'm going to uh, um, hook up here with Anne Roberts, and she is a curator at our own New Orleans Museum of Art. Anne, do I have you? Yes, yes. Hi, hello. how are you? So, um, gosh, I was back and forth with um, your, your PR gal for a bit trying to pin down um, exactly uh, – um, who was coming on, what we're going to talk about. But all along from the very beginning, what I really was excited to talk about is this fabulous um, self-taught artist show that you have up at the museum. I know there's some other exciting things. There's a great photography show up. And, and mm -hmm. I just saw this morning the email come out from Noma about the uh, Bob Dylan art show. And so I, I think that was uh, um, going to be very interesting for people to see how a man who we all know for his words and his music, um, what his, his visual images look like. So Absolutely. that's going to be interesting too. But let's start with the self-taught because, you know, I was, um, I told um, Allison in an email that one of the reasons I really wanted to hear from you is that I just put up a show at the Myrtle Banks building uh, where the, that new market, the uh, Dryads Market just opened this mm -hmm. past weekend. And we opened a show of an artist named Willie White, who's a central city self-taught artist who, displayed his work on a clothesline on his porch mm -hmm. on Dryad Street when it was still called Dryad Street before it was um, named in memory of the civil rights leader, Aretha Kessel Haley. Um, and um, so I, I kind of wanted to, uh, you know, put, put Willie's work in context and talk about 
self-taught art in general, because one of the things that my husband, who's an artist, said about Willie's work is that it, it was so it's so visionary, picking up on ancient themes, work that almost looks like it could be done in a cave, alongside extremely contemporary abstract images that he pulled really straight out of his head because he he didn't go to some art school and learn all this stuff he he really had it in his his mind and his imagination and it expressed it and i think that is a theme if i'm not mistaken for many self-taught artists oh absolutely yes uh and the we we i should specify that we currently have two uh exhibitions featuring uh self-taught art on view we have our special exhibition self-taught genius which are uh treasures uh as the title says uh from the American Folk Art Museum in New York and then we have a selection of works from uh, 20th century American self-taught artists from our permanent collection on view on our second floor. Uh, so, so you can see uh, these a, a wide kind of swath of um, self-taught art. So the self-taught genius show features work from the 1780s through the 21st century. And, and, and what that says to me is that, um, again, and, and those of us who uh, spend a lot of time in the art world know this, that art is such an important element to life, to the thought that way back in the 18th century when with the founding of this country, I mean, we're founded in 1776, and you're talking about art that was made in, in the 1780s. Right. It's, it's there from the beginning. It, it's It's a part of our lives. Always and everywhere in in all time. So, what what kind of um, what was the art that's coming from that era like, and and what do you think was um, in the hearts and minds of the artists who were making the art at that time? Well, uh, some of the the earliest pieces are are portraits uh, by by artists who one artist who called himself a self-taught genius, um, one of the, the reasons that the, the show is, is entitled as such. Um, but then there are also work, there are some furniture pieces. Uh, there are, there's an embroidery, an early embroidery uh, that was done as a, a, um, in school by a young woman in school. There are very early quilts. So the idea of, of an artist is a bit broad here uh, because it, it wasn't there were artists who considered themselves as such and would uh, go out seeking commissions to do portraits of, of uh, up and coming also self-taught or self-made um, n- new Americans at that time um, but then there were also uh, artists who were who were coming out of family or professional traditions uh, creating creating works for utilitarian purposes, uh, such as quilts that would also uh, could also tell stories um, or hold a message, uh, uh, such as a, a marriage quilt, a, a quilt that was made um, to pass on for a, a wedding. Um, so... So it's a very so so it, to some extent the artist would start with a, a purpose a, a, a service that they're providing for somebody or or creating an object that uh, is needed on mm-hmm. some level but then taking it to another level 
Mm-hmm. Especially with the, the early work. And then as we see uh, time progress, there are a number of artists, much like um, Willie, who you're speaking of, who are really compelled to create. And so this exhibition, Self-Taught Genius, is looking at how the term self-taught has changed over over this the the 200 years um, from um, from after the American Revolution, when it was this term of of pride, it was a virtue to be self-taught, to uh, to more contemporary times where it is often used to refer to artists working outside of the art historical canon or outside of the the art world, um, and so a lot of the the more contemporary works. Um, the, the 20th century uh, to 21st century works are artists who are really compelled to share uh, to share something, to spread a message, whether they are compelled by God uh, or uh, just something inside that that urges them to to create uh, using materials that they find in their everyday lives or influenced by by things they see on um, in in their everyday life. Um, it's really, it's really fascinating to see how there are similarities between uh, these very early works and the more and the later works, um, but also how they how they differ and how that term self-taught kind of shifts. Right, and um, uh, you know, I, I I'm fascinated when you talk about the pride and the virtue. Uh, to be self-taught that was was common earlier. And I I can't help but think, I mean, it's crazy, but Benjamin Franklin was kind of like that, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's sort of a perfect example. And uh, and Jefferson himself, I mean, they they became scholars. The first self-made president um, who, who, so, so people without this kind of the idea of formal education, um, that doesn't mean they don't have, and education. Um. Hello. Hello. Yes. Oh, I thought I lost you for a minute there. Um, yeah. Now let 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 me understand. Um, in in the in the two exhibits you have um, in your collection. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Now, I came out and I saw the shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sort of, um, uh, I was in between things, so I, I moved pretty quickly. But the one piece that caught my eye was a piece that um, really could have been done by uh, anybody in in, uh, in t- today's uh, contemporary art world. And it was a, a piece that kind of pulled together literally things that looked like might have been strewn around the yard of the audience, and, and he constructed them into a sculpture that was, um, you know, just a sculpture made from almost just trash. And I love that piece because it, it, it takes it takes really something that most people would consider nothing or stuff to be thrown out or put in a dumpster, and, and he made art from it. Right. I mean, there, there are several artists um, in both Self-Taught Genius and our permanent collection show called Unfiltered Visions that uh, who, who use materials that are found and often discarded. I mean, Thornton Dial is represented in both shows, and he uh, is, is well-known for, for taking scraps um, and, and going to junkyards and taking I mean, actual refuse, things that people have thrown out, and gives, he gives them a new life. He repurposes them uh, to, uh, to, in, in his artwork. Um, 
but there there are uh, so Thornton and Dial, uh, Lonnie Holly, uh, Ronald Lockett uh, are are three artists and self taught genius who are all who are all working in in similar ways like that. And and do you think that in today's world where it's so um, dominated by technology and our our smartphones and my goodness I was just talking to some uh, entertainment producers I don't know if you heard the prior conversations but uh, the last speaker was I was asking him what's next because he formed Mm -hmm. a sort of um, innovative distribution company and he was talking about um, the the world of streaming and and talking about how everything is going to be dominated by streaming from from everywhere from global streaming and things that will turn up from Africa, from uh, all parts of the world. And I was thinking, wow, what does that mean? We're going to be so exposed to culture uh, at our fingertips from everywhere. How will that affect our artists? And and, and what about our our today's self-taught artists? Are they uh, kind of working in the digital universe, too? Have you seen anything like that? I'm just curious. I'm trying to think of works that are affected by the digital world. I mean, the most, since we were just, I just mentioned Ronald Lockett, uh, whose work, he's actually the uh, nephew of Thornton Dial uh, and works in a similar way. He finds uh, metal were found. Um, uh, The work that's in Self-Taught Genius was composed out of uh, scrap metal that he found on his uh, family's land. And in the center, he has uh, a figure that's kind of delineated by nails and uh, cut strips of the of the metal, and it is a figure uh, from uh, Giorgione's the, the Tempest. Um, so he's referencing art history. So I mean, I'm fascinated by this because a lot of the works in the show are are. Uh, influenced just by things that that people were uh, seeing around them. So obviously he he's familiar with this piece, though he didn't have a formal art education. But he can Google now. He, he can, can just Google get it. online. You can you can, you can tour yeah, some of the best museums right. in the world's collections online. Go to the library and uh, and see see uh, beautiful books and uh, and. It, it, everything is much more accessible now, and that is going to absolutely change uh, how self-taught artists um, are, are influenced. You know, speaking of self-taught artists, and, and we mentioned uh, earlier for just a minute that you now also have a show opening of Bob Dylan's work, and I'm wondering, um, did Dylan actually study art, or was he um, himself actually a self-taught artist in the visual category oh that's something that I can't answer definitively I honestly don't um, don't know if he if he's taken formal classes um, I'm or, looking at a, a little write-up that I have on him and I don't see anything I, mentioned no, about I, artists I've not, I've not I've not heard that he has yeah it looks like he's, he, he <laughs> it looks like he was sketching throughout his um, career while he traveled uh, for art and um, 
Let's see, see, between 89 and 92, while traveling the world on tour, he created over 90 sketches. Mm-hmm. And in 94, these portraits, interiors, and landscapes, still lives, news, and street scenes were published in a book. So, um, drawn blank, it says, used these yeah. drawings to create his first series of paintings. Um, yeah, it sounds like he, he himself was actually self-taught. Actually, when you think about it, most musicians, in a way, and they, they learn, you know, how to play an instrument, of course, at some point. But um, in terms of the music they create, it's it's almost always something completely innovative and new as compared with what they uh, uh, heard before they came up with their, their new music form. The ones that, that really emerge and, and dominate and we, we learn about and we know about are um, musicians who came up with something uh, totally new and out of their um, imaginations. It's such a wonderful thing, isn't it, to be able to work with the artists that you have put into this show. Um, so give me the names of them again and tell me exactly um, how long they're going to be on view and where people can see them so we can get folks out there to see it. Uh, well, we've got Self-Taught Genius, Genius, Treasures from the American Folk Art Museum, which will be up through May 22nd. Um, and that is on our first floor. On our second floor, we have a show that was curated by Alice Yellen, uh, Unfiltered Visions, 20th Century American Self-Taught Art, um, that will be up through, I don't have a closing date in front of me, but it'll, it will be up uh, through this summer. Um, and then... Uh, and there, I only named a, a couple of, of artists. In Self-Taught Genius, there are 113 works up, um, and only um, only two artists have two works in in the show. So there, um, I can't name them all. Um, it's but- a it's a lot of work, and it's really a beautiful, very moving show. And um, I, 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 tell me, I'm wrong, but um, are, many of the artists are African American. Is that right? There, there are a number of of African American artists. Yes, um, I mean, starting with um, a a jug and a quilt that were made by uh, by slaves um, for. Um, for different, um, uh, one for a, a, a plantation in Kentucky, um, and up to, uh, I think Lonnie Holly's piece is the most recent uh, work by an African American in self-touching, yes. So, y'all, this is at the New Orleans Museum of Art, right there as you enter the park. Um, and by the way, usually it's pretty easy to park there. It might be a little bit harder during jazz because <laughs> I think some folks sneak in there because uh, um, it's not too far away. But, um, uh, but you can still take the streetcar down to us. <laughs> there you go. Take the streetcar. And um, it's, uh, by the way, you know, I, I bet a lot of folks don't know that you have a lovely restaurant there that they can grab a bite at lunch and later. Um, and that makes it uh, kind of a complete trip. Bring the family and go see these shows. They are beautiful. I really enjoyed them. And please, y'all, please come and see the Willie White show also. We didn't talk about Willie White. I meant to get that in. We're out of time. But um, uh, at the uh, Myrtle Banks School Building, in between Arado and Thalia, right on O.C. Haley Boulevard, come in the back way through the uh, market and pick up some delicious food. They've got a great new oyster bar, cocktails, lots of 
great prepared food by the caterer, Willie May. I love that stuff, and you'll enjoy it. And thank you so much, Ann, for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Take care. And, y'all, this is it. We're out of time. It's Jean Nathan. It's Cross Town Conversations, and I enjoyed being with you again. And uh, we'll check in next week. We'll probably have some more folks from the Sync Up conferences because they're just so amazing, the people that the Jazz and Heritage Festival Foundation brings to town. Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. Take care.